0: use of the facility this evening I know is going to be a fascinating uh, conversation it 's not very often that one gets to introduce one of uh, one of uh, my own heroes uh, but John is, is uh, one of those and uh, I first heard him at a training day for vickers and let me tell you that it is not guaranteed that the content of such events will be riveting but on uh, on that occasion I need not have worried because uh, john is a captivating speaker his passion for his subject his good humor but i think most of all his grace and gentle compassion always come across in uh, what he speaks, what he says john is professor emeritus of mathematics at the university of oxford emeritus fellow in mathematics and philosophy of science in green templeton college he's author of a number of books uh, on the interaction of science, religion, and ethics, and I would say has been a contributor to some of the greatest debates of perhaps our time. This evening's format uh, is that I'm going to ask John a few questions, just so that we can get to know him a little bit, and then John's going to speak for about 40 minutes. And as he's speaking, you've been given a little white card. As he's speaking, if questions come to mind please do use that time to write down any questions that you might have. At the end of John's talk, we'll take just a couple of minutes' break. We won't won't go out uh, of the theatre, but we'll take a couple of minutes while John gets his breath and we collect in those questions. And then we'll just sift those so that we're answering uh, the questions that all sort of fall fall into certain categories rather than try to answer every question that's likely to be here. Uh, And then when we've done that, Um, uh, there'll be just the opportunity um, for for John to answer some of those questions um, and then there'll be just a a sort of a tying up of the evening you've also been given uh, some feedback cards uh, and we'd love you to use those as well if at the end of the evening you have a sense that actually this uh, this has opened up a new conversation for me uh, and I'd like to carry on this conversation then do use those cards, we'll say a bit more about those later As you can imagine, we are delighted that as as a busy man and part of a busy schedule, John has been able to uh, be with us this evening and accept our invitation. So uh, as John speaks on the subject of has science buried God, would you welcome Dr John Lennox? (laughs) John, good evening. Good evening. Uh, just to, by way of getting to know you a little bit, um, you haven't said much yet. But as you speak, we will uh, we will detect an accent. Uh, you are from Northern Ireland. Just uh, say a bit about growing up in in Northern Ireland.
1: Well, first of all, thank you so much for coming, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you to the local organising group. It's a thrill to see you all here tonight confirms my belief that these questions are enormously important and increasingly important. But you now know that I'm from Northern Ireland, and that's sometimes regarded as a bit of a setback. But my parents were unusual. You know it as a sectarian country that's been riven by strife and apparently religious strife. And some of the fundamental things I learned at home were first of all, my parents were Christian without being sectarian. Now what did that mean? It meant that my father who ran a small town business that employed, I suppose, maximally about 40 folks, tried to employ across the religious divide that cost him bombs secondly they loved me enough although they were convinced Christians to allow me space to think and my father actually encouraged me on several occasions to make sure that I got to know other world views and that has played a huge role in my life so when i arrived at university i didn't feel saddled with all the sectarian baggage that so many of my contemporaries were saddled with and of course they jettisoned it the moment they got out of home because their convictions had never been their own it had been their parents convictions so i look back to that with some considerable gratitude.
0: we are we are to some extent products of our culture and our upbringing aren't we in a country like Northern Ireland is not everyone uh,
1: religious (laughs) I'm laughing because that question has actually provided me with a lot of things to do in my life because when I got to Cambridge it was one of the first things said to me in the college A student asked me at dinner, did I believe in God? And then he said, oh, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have asked you that. You're Irish, all you Irish. Believe in God and you fight about it. (laughs) I'd heard that many times. But on that occasion, it gave me an idea. Because it was true that in Northern Ireland, I had met relatively few people with alternative Worldviews. You know, you'd occasionally meet a Protestant atheist or a Catholic atheist, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but, uh, you've got it, good. Uh, but actual atheists or agnostics or people of other religions I didn't meet. So I decided that I was going to befriend people that did not share my worldview. And I've been doing it ever since. But I think one of the funniest instances of your question occurred when I was debating Peter Singer in Melbourne Town Hall. Peter Singer's regarded as the world's most eminent ethicist. And I told the audience, just like I've told you now, about my parents. So when he got up to debate me, he said, Well, there goes my major objection to religion. People stay in the religion in which they're brought up, just your point. So when i got a chance to reply i said peter i told them about my background you didn't tell them about yours tell me were your parents atheists and he said yes oh i said so you remained in the faith in which you were brought up (laughs) oh but he said it isn't a faith oh i said sorry peter i was under the impression you believed it (laughs) and that's a comment on what many people today feel. That Christianity is a faith, but atheism isn't. And we'll explore that a little bit mm. later on.
0: When you were at university, you must presumably have, have been confronted with um, either the temptation or the encouragement to to give up your faith and to, to sort of follow pure science. Yeah.
1: I was. I mean, our title tonight is Has Science Buried God. And I was told when I was 19 in very strong terms that this was the case. And the incident again has shaped my life. I found myself at dinner sitting beside a Nobel Prize winner. I'd never met one before. And uh, I've always found it easier to ask questions than answer them. And so my role in life is to play Socrates and to ask people questions. So I was sitting beside this man. I asked him questions about his science and I crept towards the God question, which turned out not to be very wise because he didn't like the God question. So I backed off and thought that was the end of it. But at the end of dinner, he said, Lennox, come to my room. And there was a bit of threat in the tone. But I went to his room, and he'd invited two or three other senior members of the university, no students. And they sat me down and stood around me. Now he said, do you want a career in science? I said, yes, sir. Well, tonight then, in front of witnesses, give up these naive ideas of God. They will cripple you intellectually. You will never make it. So if you want a career in science you need to give them up. Well, the pressure was colossal. I couldn't help thinking afterwards that if he had been, if I'd been an atheist and he'd been a Christian, he'd have lost his job the next day. But such is our world. And I said to him, what have you got to offer me that's better than what I've already got? And he proposed the philosophy of Émile Bergson. And I had happened to read it because I'd read a lot of CS and I knew what it was about. So I said, if that's all you've got, I'll take the risk and stay with what I've got. And I got up and walked out. But what that did to me was to put steel into my heart and mind. And I resolved if ever I got the chance to have an academic position, I would never do that. I would have open debate, present the evidence, if possible, with an opponent. And regard people as sufficiently intelligent to be able to make up their own minds. Mm. So it really shaped me, that that incident. It was a very strong confrontation. It was terrifying, but as I look back, I'm very thankful Mm. that it happened.
0: Mm. Mm. Thank you. This is this is not a debate this evening, and I'm not the opponent. I just have to point that out, even though it's not always guaranteed that every Anglican vicar is a, is a committed Christian. But um, <laughs> no, I <I'd> say that. <laughs> John said. Uh, John very kindly said I was allowed to have a bit of fun with him. You you have demonstrated that you just about speak English, um, but you st- <laughs> you speak. Many other languages as well. And some, one of the places you've spent a lot of time was uh, in the former Soviet Union in, in Russia. Uh, just uh, say, tell us a little bit about what you were doing there and, and how that shaped your experiences.
1: I suppose, really, it's it, it all proceeded from that question of the students. You know, you're Irish and you're religious, therefore. So I was very interested when I got the opportunity to go to Germany. To do research uh, and i worked very hard in the language so that i ended up speaking it fluently and that enabled me to make many visits behind the iron curtain when it existed particularly to east germany where i could pass virtually unnoticed, but also to hungary and poland and it was just such an education to come to grips with a culture where atheism had become part of the political culture and i could see the effects of it like speaking to kids at the age of 13 who'd been refused brilliant kids who weren't allowed any higher education because they wouldn't publicly swear allegiance to the atheistic state and things like that and then after the wall fell I started going to Russia because for many years I've been a translator of mathematical Russian, which doesn't exactly help you speak the language, but it puts, it doesn't help you to ask for a cup of tea, for instance. Um, But it was a prerequisite for really getting to know the language, and that was utterly fascinating. Many times I went to Siberia, fortunately on a two-way ticket, (laughs) and was able to talk in the Academy of Sciences to people who were simply fascinated by the fact that a person like me could exist, an academic who believed in God and who was a scientist. And some of the things they said to me, I'm just going to share one with you, are memorable. One very brilliant man said to me, he said, you know, we thought that we could abolish God and retain a value for human beings. But we discovered far too late we could not. So I learned a huge amount in those days, and I didn't know they were preparing me to face the likes of Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Peter Singer and so on. But that's another story.
0: So is Richard Dawkins and and the like are they not right make your case I've given you dinner this evening sing for your supper
1: well I'm going to then ladies and gentlemen give you a chicken curry's worth (laughs) (laughs) a particularly good chicken curry (laughs) so you can judge the chicken curry on the basis of that but thank you very much Russ it, it's really good to be here. And I treat these things as a kind of fireside conversation. I hope you will treat them as such. This is a huge topic. I can't even begin to say a, a tiny part of what I could say, but that's okay. What I'm interested in is the questions that you will ask and please do write the questions during the talk. Because if you wait to the end, you'll only be thinking about the last bit of the talk. So what we're looking at is the contention that science has buried God. And I suppose it might be good to put that in the words of the late Stephen Hawking, who wrote, One cannot prove that God doesn't exist, but science makes God unnecessary. The laws of physics can explain the universe without the need for a creator. And that's a very widespread view, partly because of Hawking and Dawkins and other people, that science is the truth teller. Everything else is irrelevant. And I suppose Massimo Pigliucci, the philosopher, he put it very well when he said, the basic assumption of science is that the world can be explained entirely in physical terms without recourse to godlike entities. And many years ago, Bertrand Russell put it this way, whatever knowledge is attainable must be attained by scientific methods. And what science cannot discover mankind cannot know so what we've got is a culture which is very influenced by what we call scientism that science is the only way to truth what science cannot tell us mankind cannot know now Russell was a brilliant mathematician logician historian philosopher but I'm afraid that when he wrote that, his logic departed him rather seriously. Think of the statement, what science cannot tell us, mankind cannot know. Is that a statement of science? No, it isn't. So if it's true, it's false. It's logically incoherent because it goes too far. I'm passionate about science and its success is obvious, but to claim that it's the only way to truth, that's where we're getting into a very dangerous area because of course it's from scientism flows the idea almost immediately that science has buried God. And to stick with Hawking for a moment, he was such a genius. He was just ahead of me in Cambridge, and he's light years ahead of me in his mathematical ability. I'm sorry, in a way, he didn't get the Nobel Prize because if Hawking radiation had been actually discovered, he would have got it, and he would have deserved it. So he was a a mathematical genius. And he wrote a book, co-authored, called the grand design came out not so long ago and it has an intriguing title here is Hawking who had just said that he was an atheist writing a book called the grand design and of course when atheists have titles like that attracts a lot of attention Because Hawking, like everybody else, can see that this universe has the appearance of design. But, as you know, they will claim it is only an appearance. It is not real design. Now, when I got the book, I was intrigued to see what he was going to do in this book. And at the beginning of it, there are a list of big questions. That people ask, how can we understand the world in which we find ourselves? How does the universe behave? What is the nature of reality? Where did all this come from? Did the universe need a creator? Why do we exist? Why this particular set of laws and not some other? Why is there something rather than nothing? That's his list of questions. And what's so interesting is when you ask, of these questions could even theoretically be addressed by science. There's only one, and that is, how does this universe behave? The others are philosophical questions. They're not scientific questions. And yet, the very next statement in the book, Hawking comes to discuss where we might get the answers. And what he says is this. Traditionally, these are questions for philosophy. But philosophy is dead. It It is not kept up with modern developments in science, particularly in physics. As a result, scientists have become the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. I was utterly astonished. Because... Hawking says philosophy is dead. The rest of his book is about the philosophy of science. And of course his colleagues in the philosophy department at Cambridge were not slow to point that out. (laughs) It's a very risky thing to say philosophy is dead. And it shows that there's a problem here. Now don't misunderstand me, I have no criticism of Hawking's science. He was a brilliant scientist. But in this book he moves outside science, which is okay. We all go out our subject, outside our subject matter. You might be thankful for that. You didn't come to hear a lecture in algebra tonight. <laughs> and I could empty this room in 35 seconds <laughs> by talking to you about algebra. But you see, we've got to be so careful. And it is to his credit that our astronomer Royal said in the context of the death of Stephen Hawking. He said, I know Stephen very well. And he knows no theology and little philosophy. And we should not listen to a word he says about either of them. And that was quite something to say in that context. But he felt it was important, to be honest, because, ladies and gentlemen, one of the biggest problems in this debate is that science has such authority that we don't realize that not every statement by a scientist is a statement of science. That is a crucial thing to realize. And in fact, Richard Feynman, the Nobel Prize winner for physics, he said, outside his own field, the scientist is just as dumb as the next guy. (laughs) And I need to take that on board tonight, but I'm going outside my own field of pure mathematics. But the critical thing is that we check the best work of people when we do that. And I have to do that all of my life. So it raises a question in my mind. There's something disturbing about this. Here's a famous scientist, a brilliant scientist. And you expect when you open the book that he's going to deal with these huge questions, the big questions that we all ask. How is he going to deal with them? Well, first he says philosophy's dead. And then he proceeds to deal with a series of philosophical questions. So I asked myself the question, what is his main argument? And I'm going to discuss it with you this evening. Here it is. On the scale of the entire universe, the positive energy of the matter can be balanced by the negative energy gravitational energy and so there's no restriction on the creation of whole universes and here it comes because there is a law like gravity the universe can and will create itself from nothing spontaneous creation is the reason there's something rather than nothing that's one of his big questions why the universe exists why we exist that's another of his big questions It is not necessary to invoke God to light the blue touch paper and set the universe going. So let's look at this contention. Because there is a law like gravity, that is because there is something. Gravity is not nothing. The law of gravity is not nothing. So because there is something, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. That's a flat contradiction full stop in a sense it invalidates the entire argument but this i point out is the major and central argument of the entire book that disturbs me even more now one could say that hawking maybe is suggesting that laws are creative you see because there is a law of gravity not because gravity exists But what would a law of gravity mean if there's no gravity? And this opens a window on another possible serious misunderstanding, which was expressed perhaps best by Paul Davis, another brilliant physicist whom I love reading. But he wrote this. There's no need to invoke anything supernatural in the origins of the universe or of life. I have never liked the idea of divine tinkering. That's not exactly a scientific way of putting things. I've never liked the idea of divine tinkering. For me, it is much more inspiring to believe that a set of mathematical laws can be so clever as to bring all these things into being. Well, that's pure nonsense, actually, because laws are not creative. Do any of you remember the financial crisis? Painfully well that partially came about because there were some mathematicians believed that you could create money by doing mathematics and c.s lewis long ago pointed out the fallacy there you can add one and one to all eternity but it'll never produce anything if you want to add one pound to one pound and get two pounds you have to have the pounds first the mathematics won't produce them and it is a huge flaw in thinking to imagine that mathematics is creative think of another aspect of this newton's laws of motion we learned some of them at school but they've never moved a billiard ball in the history of the universe people with cues do that what do the laws do they provide a description of what happens but they don't cause the motion and that's a huge mistake to think that mathematics produced the universe or any law of gravity or anything else so there's a fundamental mistake here if that is really what hawking believes i'm not sure of that but it sounds like it from what he wrote But now let's take the rest of the statement. The universe can create itself. But logic tells you if anything creates itself, it must already be in existence. It. What do you mean it? The it must be there to do the creating. So this is nonsense. And um, I'm afraid it simply shows that nonsense remains nonsense even if high-powered scientists write it. And then the universe creates itself from nothing. Well, that's a very interesting topic. And I'd love to divert and give you a little lecture about nothing. I go around giving lectures about nothing these days <laughs> because I find it utterly intriguing. I hope you do. Because, you see, the standard model of the universe, the cosmologist brings them to a state where they believe the universe came from nothing but how do you get something from nothing that was another of the big questions and that is proving very difficult because when you investigate hawking's nothing you find it isn't nothing at all it's a quantum vacuum and so there's much ado about nothing among the cosmologists these days and i had the opportunity to debate alan guth who's the father of inflation one of the most brilliant cosmologists alive today at MIT Harvard Faculty Club. And I asked the first question, which was very unusual for me, because as a debater, I don't. But I said, Alan, do you know, in the public, we're all very confused about nothing. When you, as a cosmologist, talk about a universe from nothing, do you mean nothing in the sense in which we all take it? That is the absence of anything. He said, no, we don't. I said, thank you very much. So here's the claim of Hawking's book. We get a universe from nothing, but it's not true. And dare I say it, the nonsense gets amplified. Lawrence Krauss is another very distinguished cosmologist from Arizona State University, and he wrote this. Just think of this statement. Surely nothing is every bit as physical as something Especially if you define it to be the absence of something. What? (laughs) I find that extremely disturbing. If this is the way God gets abolished, well, this isn't science at all. It's not even rational. It's not even intelligible. So we have to look very seriously not at the scientific qualifications of these people, but at their statements about philosophy. A little word about science. Lord Winston, he of IVF fame, once said this science is not about certainty, science is about probability science is not about absolutes we scientists give the impression that science is about truth it is not it is about what is most likely now that's coming away from russell's notion isn't it it's much more humble and it's much more honest and the point i now want to make is that russell was wrong Science isn't the only way to truth, that's logically incoherent. But if you listen to a Nobel Prize winner, Sir Peter Medawar, he points out that there is indeed a limit on science, as made very likely by the existence of questions that science cannot answer, and that no conceivable advance of science would empower to answer. These are the questions that children ask, the ultimate questions of Karl Popper, such as, How did everything begin? What are we all here for? What is the point of living? Again, fitting into Hawking's big questions. And when you think about it, is absolutely right. The power of science really is in the fact that it asks limited questions. Here are some things science cannot explain. First of all, it cannot explain mathematics and logic, because it all depends on mathematics and logic. Secondly, it cannot explain values and ethical beliefs. Thirdly, it cannot explain aesthetic experience. And fourthly, it cannot even explain science itself. You need to think about that a little bit. But you see, science rests on certain assumptions. Now, here I'm coming to the fact which may surprise some of you. I'm a Christian. That means I believe in God. That is my faith. But it's evidence-based. Science involves faith, crucially, as well. We don't often realize that because of the kind of comment I referred to before by Peter Singer. Atheism's not a faith. I'm a rational scientific thinker. It's not faith. Oh, but it is. You see, look back at the rise of modern science of the 16th, 17th century. Think of Galilee, Kepler, Newton, um, Euler. I must have a mathematician in there. And Clark Maxwell, they were all believers in God. And you know, the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge is probably the most famous in the world. And above the door, you can still read the words, great are the works of the Lord to be studied by all who take delight in them. What drove the rise of modern science? Well, C.S. Lewis Wrote this. Professor Whitehead, Alfred North Whitehead, points out that centuries of belief in a God who combined the personal energy of Jehovah with the rationality of a Greek philosopher first produced that firm expectation of systematic order which rendered possible the birth of modern science. Men became scientific because they expected law in nature, and they expected law in nature because they believed in a legislator so the alleged conflict between science and theism is superficial and now i want to bring something else in because the world at large particularly in the west thinks there's a real conflict between science and belief in god and science is one but just a moment you can easily see that that's false think again of the nobel prize for physics stephen weinberg won it He's an atheist. And ETS Walton won it. I suppose you've never heard of him, but I'm mentioning him because he's the only Irish Nobel Prize winner. <laughs> he helped split the atom with Sir John Cockcroft, by the way. So he was no main winner of the Nobel Prize. He was a Christian. Now, what does that tell you? Well, it tells you that the conflict is not between science and God. Here are two men... Both won the Nobel Prize for Physics, their science doesn't divide them. What does divide them? Their worldview. And, ladies and gentlemen, if we can grasp this, we'll have a way into the contemporary debate. It's not science versus God, it's theism as a worldview versus atheism, and there are scientists on both sides. Now, that's a hugely important observation to. Make. And we have the curious situation that Isaac Newton, who discovered gravitation and gave us the law of gravity, believed in God, and Stephen Hawking, who studied gravity, is an atheist. And more than that, Newton used gravity as an argument for belief in God. He wrote a famous mathematics book, the most famous book in the history of science called Principia Mathematica. And he hoped it would help people to believe in a divine authority behind the universe. Stephen Hawking, he explores black holes and gravitational attraction. And you heard what I read. It's because there is a law like gravity that we don't need God. So there's a a very interesting tension between Newton and Hawking, both of whom held the same chair at Cambridge. Why has that happened? Is it a matter of advance in science? I don't think so at all. I think it rests on certain confusions, which I'm about to explain briefly. First of all, False ideas about the nature of God. I didn't pick this up for a long time. Because, possibly because of my background. Because when I use the word God, I'm speaking about the eternal God who created and sustains the universe, the God of the Bible. But you see, many contemporary people, they've got so used to relegating the God of the Bible to just another god in the pantheon, like the Greek god of lightning or thunder and so on, that they've come to think of God as a placeholder for what science has not yet explained. We call that a god of the gaps. I can't explain it, therefore God did it. You've all come across that kind of thinking. And of course, gods of the gaps are dealt with, by definition, by expanding science if you believe in a god of lightning you'll get rid of that god very quickly and rightly by studying atmospheric physics and so all gods are dismissed but just a moment see the god of the bible is not a god of the gaps he's the god of the whole show i expect some of you have read the first couple of lines of the bible when they go like this In the beginning, God created the bits of the universe we don't yet understand. (laughs) No? But that's the way it's read, you see. Now, follow the logic of this because it's important. If you define God to be a God of the gaps, a placeholder, that's just the explanation X of what we don't understand, then, of course, science will dismiss that God because that's the way you've defined him. It's as simple as that. But you're not dealing with the God of the Bible. So Newton, when he discovered gravity, didn't say, wonderful, I've got gravity, I don't need God, which is, to paraphrase Hawking's view. No, he said, what a genius of a God who did it that way. That's a totally different attitude. In fact, isn't it true in life that the more we understand of something, say, a Rolls-Royce engine, the more we admire the genius of the designer, not the less. The more we understand about painting, the more we admire, as I did a few days ago, the broidal paintings not the less. And so logic would tell us that the more we understand of the universe, the more we admire the God that did it that way. Why is that? Because you see, God is not the same kind of explanation as science is. The title, Has Science Buried God? assumes really that you've two explanations you've the god explanation and you've the science explanation and one excludes the other but that's not true ladies and gentlemen let's try it out at a much simpler level why is the water boiling well because the molecules of water are agitated by the heat coming from a gas flame yes or is it because i want a cup of tea <laughs> Well, it's actually the latter. (laughs) Now, your laughter tells me something. It tells me that you understand that these two explanations, they're very different. One's a scientific description about heat. The other is a human agency description about desire and volition and intention do they conflict no do they compete no do they complement very much so and you need both and in fact the more important one is of course the one about the cup of tea people have been drinking tea for millennia before they understood about heat equations now this is a very simple analogy but it is enormously important because if you say science is the only way to truth, then the only allowable explanation of the water boiling is a scientific one. You see, that's nonsensical. You need both. Let me put it this way. God no more competes with science as an explanation for the universe than Henry... Ford competes with automobile engineering as an explanation for the motor car. So God is not going to disappear. In fact, God is the cause of the existence of the universe that science studies. If he hadn't created it, there'd be no science done whatsoever. So we've got to see a big and a comprehensive picture here. So there are false ideas about God and there are false ideas about scientific explanation that I have just mentioned to you. And the final point before we go into questions is that has has science abolished God? No. But I think science could easily abolish atheism. And you say, what? You're not serious. Oh, but I am, ladies and gentlemen. Serious. You see, it was Alvin Plantinga who said the conflict between science and God is superficial. There's deep accord. But he also says the concord between science and atheism is actually superficial, but there's deep conflict. Let me explain that very briefly. I sometimes ask my colleagues, in fact, I often do this with scientists I have met before, I say, what do you do science with? And before they tell me about the latest machine, they've got, I point like this, and they say, oh, you mean my, and they're about to say mind, when they realize that's not politically correct. And they say, brain. Well, I happen to believe the brain and the mind are distinct. The brain story and the mind story are very different and so on. But let it stand. I say, okay, fine, the brain. Tell me about the brain, the brief history of the brain. Well, the brain is, what shall we say, the end product of a mindless, unguided process. So I look at them and I say, and you trust it. Now, tell me, seriously. <laughs> now, I've always asked this supplementary question. Be honest with me. If you knew that your computer was the end product of a mindless, unguided process, would you trust it? I've always had the answer, no. So I said, you have a problem. But often they say to me, where did you get that argument from? And I say, I'm going to surprise you now. I got it from Charles Darwin. Because Charles Darwin wrote, With me the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of the lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. You see... As Lewis puts it once, if our thinking is not valid, no science can be true. So arguments that undermine the validity of thought cannot be true because they are reached by thinking. Now, it's interesting that Lewis wrote that. It's in a way much more interesting that one of the world's top atheist philosophers, thinks that way too. His name is Thomas Nagel and he's written a book with a very provocative subtitle. It's called Mind and Cosmos. Why the neo-Darwinian view of the world is almost certainly false. That's a very unusual title these days. And he writes this. If the mental is not itself merely physical, it cannot be fully explained by physical science. Evolutionary naturalism implies that we shouldn't take any of our convictions seriously including the scientific world picture on which evolutionary naturalism itself depends so i want to argue that far from science abolishing god science point toward god the very fact that science can be done points to a rational mind behind the universe, because if you deny that mind, you start to undermine the validity of the rationality that enables you to do science or any thinking whatsoever. I have one more point to make, if I may make one more point, and it's this. Very often I discover when I talk like this, people say, but look, you're overlooking some basic stuff because this is all very well talking about a mind behind the universe but you're a christian and surely you're obliged to believe things that are utterly impossible for a rational scientifically trained person to believe notably the heart of your christian faith is the claim that jesus christ rose from the dead and you're invoking the supernatural in a big way. And we all know that the supernatural and miracles are ruled out of court and have been ever since David Hume in the Enlightenment pointed out that miracles are violations of the laws of nature. End of story. No matter how subtle your argument appears to be, you can't have Christianity because it's central claims founder on this fact that miracles are impossible. Well, that sounds very impressive until you investigate it. And I had the opportunity not far from here, before he died, to talk to the late Anthony Flew. Uh, Really, he was the Richard Dawkins of his day, a brilliant philosopher who was the world expert on David Hume. And I asked him what he thought now, because in his high old age, very interestingly, he came to believe in a God. And he came to believe in a God, interestingly, because of the discovery of the language-like structure of DNA, which he could see could not be argued to have come from non-rationality. Just as you see that word up there. Many letters are in it. Uh, Seven. You know immediately that whatever processes were involved in producing that poster, there's a mind behind it. Because you recognize the word as linguistically meaningful. And yet, we all know now, that the longest word that's ever been discovered is over three billion letters long, chemical letters, DNA. What about it? Well, it seems to me there's another very clear pointer, And that's what led Flew to believe in God. And I said, what about David Hume? And he said to me this, talk about honesty for one of the world's top philosophers. He said, I was wrong about David Hume. And he said, my greatest regret is I would have to write all my books over again. That's some humility, you know. I I was deeply moved by this. Why? Because he came to see that Hume's talk about miracles being the laws of nature is pretty well obviously false. Just think about it for a moment. I stay in a hotel... Tonight, say, and I put £100 in the drawer. And I stay tomorrow night and I put another £100 in. That's 200 Wake up on the third morning and I find £50 in the drawer. Now tell me, what has happened? Is it that the laws of arithmetic have been broken? Or the laws of England? <laughs> it's the laws of England, isn't it? How do you know that? because the laws of arithmetic have not been broken. I owe this again, as I owe very much, to C.S. Lewis. It's so obvious that confusion lies in the word law. The laws of nature are not like the laws of England. They simply describe what normally happens. And if you use mathematics, the interesting thing is, we only know that the laws of england have been broken because of the laws of mathematics have not been broken and in one sense that blows the whole thing apart it means that science cannot tell you that the supernatural doesn't exist or that miracles don't happen or that resurrections don't occur what science can tell you and historical observation It can tell you that they're very improbable but nobody ever claimed they weren't let me put it another way if i was claiming that jesus christ rose from the dead through natural processes going on in the tomb five minutes before he rose then it would be breaking the laws of nature but you see the new testament as everywhere else very careful to point out that god raised jesus from the dead it was the input of power from outside the system. Go back to my drawer in the hotel. My mistake was to think that the drawer and the room were a closed system. They weren't. A thief could put their hand in. Intervention was possible. And the mistake that naturalist philosophy makes, and I'm afraid Dawkins and Hawking were guilty of it, is to think that this universe is a closed system of cause and effect. It is not. The creator who designed it is perfectly capable of feeding new events into the system. And that's exactly what the Christian claim is. The word, God, who created the universe, became human and dwelt among us. But that's a story for another time. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen.
0: John, thank you very much indeed. Uh, fascinating and, and I'm sure we could listen for much longer. Um, I, I would encourage you just to be completing those question cards and if you can pass them along to the ends of the, the rows then uh, our team will collect those uh, and we will just uh, have a, a two minute uh, break. Please don't leave the theatre but if you need to stand up and stretch uh, and then we'll collect those in. Uh, obviously, I'm, I'm going to hand back over to John and sit here in the uh, in awe as he uh, goes through some of these questions and gives us some answers john thank you
1: well this is q a time ladies and gentlemen and therefore it's going to be an inadequate experience and the reason for that is that i haven't seen these questions really there are dozens of them it feels like everest out there and i've been handed them in groups really but Q&As have certain disadvantages and certain advantages which I need to explain. Now, these questions, which I'm going to attempt to comment on, I'll only be able to say what comes into my head off the cuff. And that is risky, of course, because many of them would deserve a lecture or a book even. That's okay, because if the question that you have asked is not one of those questions just to try to say what I know and what I don't know. You'll soon discover I don't know very much anyway. There's something wrong with the sound, by the way. Isn't there? There's echo coming. That's That's better, is it? I think it may be that mic pointing at mine. That you may well find what I say is not adequate, not enough. That's great because if your question is a real question the most important work will be done by you after this session and if it is a real question you will do the work to find out an answer that satisfies you and once you've got it you'll never forget it so with that understanding let's go ahead how do we get this debate out more widely into the public scientists down from their pedestal and elevate the profile of christians but i'm not sure that i'd see it quite like that because some scientists are deservedly on a pedestal because of their brilliance but i understand what lies behind that and the question also seems to think that scientists and christians again are two separate categories and i've tried to emphasize that that is not the case how do we get the debate out there by gabbling about it (laughs) by actually getting involved and engaging with other people and showing them good material that we get say from the internet and there's nothing like having a, a mixed group of people of different belief systems into your home simple meal even a cup of coffee and showing them something and that'll get a discussion going, even if you don't want to lead a discussion. You don't have to. There will be discussion. So the debate needs to be heightened. The trouble is, I'm afraid, in the UK, with our media, it's very prejudiced because the BBC, at least used to say, that the default position was naturalism. I don't believe there is a default position. There are various worldviews And each of them has a right to sit at the table. And that's what we're promoting tonight and all during this week of events in the schools and around the district and churches. It's very important to to raise the profile. How would you refute Nancy Murphy's view of consciousness as non-reductive physicalism? (laughs) Well, very easily, actually. This is the idea that there's only one kind of stuff, I'm putting it very crudely, and it's the attempt to understand consciousness. Now, consciousness is a huge barrier at the level of science, because nobody understands what consciousness is, or how it relates to the physical substrate of the brain, for instance. And there are various theories advanced. And one of them is physicalism. That is, there's only one kind of stuff. But somehow, consciousness either emerges from it or is imposed upon it and all this kind of thing. Well, I once went to a lecture on this topic in Oxford. uh, On this very topic. And the lecture was holding forth on non-reductive physicalism and uh, i eventually put up my hand to ask a question and my question was in the form of a statement that had only three words in it i said god is spirit and the lecturer said my philosophy cannot cope with that and walked out of the room So that's all I've got to say at the moment about non reductive physicalism. Except if you want to read what I think about it, I wrote an article in a book mistitled The Missing Link, which is edited by a man called Roy Varghese, where a whole group of us were invited to give our take on the mind body problem and consciousness. And I've written in that book an essay. So that's all i'm going to say you'll have a bit of shameless advertising tonight because (laughs) i am a christian but i can't comprehend how god came to be i am not surprised because god did not come to be and behind this question it goes on to say i've no qualms understanding that god created the universe This is a question that believers have posed to me, and I don't know how to answer it. Now, it's important, why? Because Dawkins makes it the heart of his book, The God Delusion. If you believe that God created the universe, you must then logically ask who created the creator. And then, of course, who created the creator that created the, and so it goes on forever. But that is very superficial thinking. You see, if you ask who created God or what created God, think of what you're presupposing. You're presupposing that God is created. It's obvious, isn't it? But what if he isn't? Then the question doesn't apply. And this is the problem here. God did not, at least the God of the Bible, did not come to be. That is the thrust of the Brilliant piece of writing with which the fourth gospel starts. In the beginning was the Word. That's an existence statement. The Word already was. The Word is eternal. The Word was God. All things came to be through him. John is making this point. The Word never came to be. The universe did Come to be and so the question who created God is a meaningless question because God was not created that's point number one point number two is that I find that my Christian friends don't ask questions backwards forever but nor do my atheist friends for me for instance The backstop is God. God is the creator of the whole show. Full stop. He wasn't created. He's eternal. And for my atheist friends, often the backstop is, well, mass energy, or as you heard tonight, nothing. It's interesting, isn't it, that we've come to the stage where the basic choice is between God and nothing to be responsible for the universe that i find utterly fascinating i never thought i'd live to see that it's god or nothing that's that's the choice that's before us but they stop and the point is that the stopping of the questions is with what we think ultimate reality is i think as a christian ultimate reality is god and of course many of my atheists Friends, think the ultimate reality is either quantum vacuum nothing or the multiverse but it stops there essentially so the question is not is there an ultimate reality we all appear to believe there is the question is which reality is ultimate oh so that's how I would deal with that oh by the way there is a third point because Richard Dawkins put this question to me in the debate, and you can see that on the internet. Um, And I said to him, well, you see, I made the points I've just made to you, but I added an extra one. I said, this question, of course, does work with created entities. What created X, who or what created X, if X is created? So let me try it on you. You believe that the universe created you. So let me ask you your question. Who created your creator? I've waited over 10 years and not got an answer. So that's a little contribution on that. Is the idea of God as an intelligent creator not just a result of drawing parallels from our own psychology? Are we not creating a God in our own image? Well, we could be. That's Freud's argument. And that's, of course, you Irish all believe in God uh, kind of thing. That it's a projection of your desire for a father figure in the sky. I understand that. It's a brilliant argument if there isn't a God. It works perfectly. Freud was dead right. It's a good explanation for religion if there is no God, that we like a father figure in the sky and we project our own psychological desires onto an old man with a beard in the sky. It works if there's no God. But you see, what people forget is the sword is two-edged. If there is a God, Freud's argument will tell you that atheism is a psychological delusion. Czesław Miłosz won the Nobel Prize for Literature in Poland. And when he wrote that atheism is a great opium of the people, because it relieves us, and I'm paraphrasing, of the fear of having to face a God who judges for the mess we've made of our lives and of others. And he knew what he was talking about, having lived under communism. You see, let me put it this way, and I got this from a German psychiatrist, brilliant Manfred Lutz. If there is no God, Freud's argument is brilliant. Religion is a psychological wish projection. If there is no God. But if there is a God, it's atheism is the psychological wish fulfillment. But where Freud, Jung and Frankl cannot help you at all is settle the basic question, whether there's a God or not. And that's what people miss when they put up this objection, which is so very common. This is the question I've asked myself so often. And, of course, trying to decide whether there's a God or not, what I've done is spent my life being vulnerable to criticism from people that do not share my worldview. Okay, as a Christian... How do you see the Big Bang theory as compatible with the story of creation in Genesis? Well, what is the Big Bang theory? It was Sir Fred Hoyle, who was one of my examiners at Cambridge, who coined the phrase the Big Bang because he didn't like it. You and your Big Bang Fred Hoyle believed in a steady-state view of the universe. He didn't like the idea that the universe had a beginning for fairly obvious reasons. And so he said, you and your Big Bang. The words Big Bang are merely a label on a complete mystery. But what they assert is that there was a beginning. And that's exactly what Genesis has been saying for centuries. As I pointed out to a very elite gathering of physicists some time ago, who mocked the idea that the Bible could have anything remotely relevant to say to us in the 21st century. And I admitted to them, of course, that the Bible is pre-scientific by definition, certainly pre-modern scientific. But he said, is it interesting that it took until the 1960s before the world of science conceded there was a beginning And the Bible has been saying it for thousands of years. And I said, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? If you had taken the biblical worldview more seriously than you took Aristotle, you might have started to search for evidence of a beginning far earlier than you did. You see, you can base predictions that are testable by science on the basis of what the Bible states. Now, the Bible is not a textbook of science. I've taught algebra from Leviticus. Never, ever. (laughs) But let's not run away with the idea that it is nothing true to say about the universe. The statement, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, is a statement about exactly the same universe that physicists study. Okay? So what's next to surprise me? I haven't looked through these, so here they come. Would you agree that there's... There, well, just a minute. One, two, three. Well, that's a different one. Four. That's the same one. okay all of these questions appear to be almost the same and they have to do with conflict between science and christianity would you agree that there's no conflict why did one interprets the bible liberally rather than always literally e.g earth created in about six thousand years And there's a whole host of questions about the age of the earth, the age of the universe, and related questions on the theory of evolution. Well, that's an interesting way of putting it. You either interpret the Bible liberally or literally. Well, you see, here again, a lot of confusion arises because no one takes the Bible literally that I have ever met. And if they object and say to me, gosh, that's terrible. Don't you take the Bible literally? I say, certainly not. Everywhere. And I simply say to them, Jesus said, I am the door. Do you take that literally? (laughs) (laughs) And they usually have never thought about it before. Of course they don't. But then I teach them a little lesson in grammar. The trouble is in the UK we don't learn english grammar anymore i learned grammar through latin and i'm so glad that I did you see when jesus said i am the door he didn't intend it literally how do you know that well you know it because you know some science actually you know about doors and about the world thinking of science is generally understanding the world around us okay but now Here's the mistake that's made. I'm grateful to Lewis, again, for pointing this out. It's a metaphor. But metaphors stand for something real. So Jesus is not a literal door at the base level. He's a real door. I would want to argue a real door into a genuine spiritual experience of God. Anyone in this room can have and even start it tonight. So that's a literal experience. But it's not a literal door. Do you see the difference? Where's the problem? The word literal is almost useless. And we get caught up in that. And we make endless mistakes. The Bible is full of metaphor. Sometimes when people ask me this question, do you take it literally? I say, Israel was a land flowing with milk and honey. So when the Israelites came into Canaan, they met a great sticky ball of milk and honey (laughs) coming, crashing down the main street. No, no, no. You take it spiritually, don't you? Israel was a land full of the milk of the word of God and the honey of the Holy Spirit. Nonsense. Think of the statement. Israel was a land. Israel, literal. Land, literal. Flowing is a metaphor. The milk and honey were literal. There were good grass and cows and bees and all the rest of it. Flowing is a metaphor. And we're used to making those distinctions in everyday language. If I said to you, I saw the vicar yesterday flying down the car in his Porsche. (laughs) Well, you mightn't believe it, but you would understand it. He wasn't actually flying. It's a metaphor for driving fast. But it's a metaphor for something real. So let's realize that the Bible is rich literature. It's full of metaphor, but it's metaphor that describes reality, and we have to disentangle it, as we do every day in our conversation. Okay? That's point number one. Now, point number two is there are certain things that are based on literal in Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a statement about the physical universe jesus rose from the dead that's not a metaphor for anything it actually happened and so on but then things that actually happen can be used as metaphors it's interesting isn't it i wear on my hand a concretized metaphor it's called a wedding ring it's a literal symbol it's made of gold or at least i think it is um (laughs) And it symbolizes a relationship. Do you see that? Life is complex. And I discovered that many people have difficulty with the Bible. Why? Because they treat it as less than a book. Rather than as more than a book. But then the other question was, if you take it literally, the Bible says that the earth was created in 6,000 years. Does it? Does it? Now, there are a whole lot of questions relate to that. So would you like me to say something about that? Quick? Yes. You would. Okay. Very briefly. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's what it says. There then follows a sequence of days. Do you remember that? And God said, day one. And God said, day two and so on. Six of them and the seventh day of rest. Now, what's so interesting about this is that all the days begin with, and God said. So, in the beginning is not on day one. That's obvious from the grammatical text. It's not on day one. That's point number one. Point number two, a bit of grammar. I'm not an expert in Hebrew, so I consulted the professors of Hebrew at both Oxford and Cambridge to see if they agreed. The past tense used in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth is not the same as is used in the sequence of days. What's the difference? Well, according to the experts, the first past tense that's used in the initial statement describes an event that occurs before the sequence at an indefinite period of time. Isn't that fascinating? That immediately takes the heat out of this. What does the Bible say about the age of the earth? Nothing. Less so about the age of the universe. Now, that's irrespective of what you believe about the days. That's the fascinating thing. If you want to know what I believe about the days, I'm afraid here comes a bit of shameless advertising. I've written a book about them. (laughs) It's called Seven Days That Divide the World. And you can get it even on Kindle these days. So I'll have to leave you with that. But the important point here is that often it's taking the Bible more seriously as literature that resolves a lot of these Apparent conflicts that come from superficial reading of the text and lead people into all kinds of unnecessary clashes between the Bible and science. Now, the question of evolution has been raised here. And I'm only going to say something briefly about this. What about evolution and belief in God? Well, the first obvious thing is there are many people who believe in evolution and are Christian and believers in god so it would appear perfectly possible to believe in both now the next question is what do you actually mean by evolution it has so far as i'm aware at least five meanings some of them are totally uncontroversial like what darwin saw his finch beaks and all this kind of stuff that kind of thing minor changes well look at us in this room Why do we not all look the same? Because, ladies and gentlemen, let me remind you that selection has gone on. It even sometimes goes on in lectures like this, but that's another matter. (laughs) There has been selection. I, at least I think I chose my wife. She thinks she chose me. But anyway... um, (laughs) And mutation goes on. And some of us, a third of us actually, have got mutations in our genetic makeup that unfortunately will spell our end. So selection and mutation have done something. That's utterly clear. There's nothing controversial about it. The controversy comes when we claim that the mechanisms that have done something have done everything. And I just want to make one major point here. One of the huge mistakes in thinking about evolution, sadly perpetuated by Richard Dawkins until he publicly changed his position, is that evolution is responsible for the existence of life. That is logical nonsense. Why? Because whatever evolution does or doesn't do, it depends on life's existence to get going. So it cannot be used as an explanation for the origin of life. That is hugely important because the really big problems occur at the level of the origin of genetic information and so on and so forth. And in that connection, today I watched a stunning lecture by the president of the Royal College of Surgeons in Scotland. It was a lecture given just last week or so, and it was utterly riveting. His final lecture, as he retires to a large audience, and it's on this question of is design real or apparent, coming from the perspective of a medical scientist. And I recommend it. David Galloway. Professor David Galloway. It is riveting watching. The illustrations are absolutely brilliant. And the argument is superb. So, to sum up, one, the evolutionary questions, whatever the answer there is, you cannot deduce atheism from evolution. Why? Because evolution whatever it is a mechanism that does something well gravity does something but you cannot deduce atheism from gravity you know it's because they don't belong to the same category atheism is a worldview evolution is a theorem in biology they don't belong to the same kind of category again I'm afraid if you want to know more of what I think well let me change the parameters a bit. Have a look at my website, <laughs> johnlennox.org. So let's see. Did you have any other questions, you guys? Because I've really exhausted this little pile. I mean, I'm not answering them all, but of course I can't do that. Now, there was one other one. Yes, before I come to these there was, have we got a few more minutes, sir? Have we? There was a question which I have dropped, I think, but it was a question about the multiverse that I mentioned briefly in the talk. This is the view that there's, at least one version of it, is that there's an infinite number of universes in which anything that could possibly happen does happen so there's no surprise we find ourselves in a universe like this and the universe is used as an argument to increase the plausibility of life existing because you see stephen hawking the grand design notices that there's a problem what's the problem the problem is as he himself explains very clearly that the scientists in the last 50 to 100 years have discovered what is called the extreme fine tuning of the parameters of the universe. The size of basic constants like gravity and the ratios, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, have to be very accurate in order to have a universe in which carbon based life is sustainable. And Hawking says this demands explanation. And then he says this. He says some people prefer the old view that the reason the universe is so precisely fine-tuned is because it is the work of a creator. I prefer to think, he says, that this universe is one of many. And so he brings in the multiverse. It's very interesting that, you see, the old view. C.S. Lewis has a lovely word for this. He calls it chronological snobbery. (laughs) If it's old, it must be wrong. Well, that's nonsense, of course. Mathematics basically hasn't changed since I was young, and I'm very old, so (laughs) you can put that to rest very quickly. Secondly, he pitches God against the multiverse. But, As one of his co-workers, who happens to be a Christian and believes in the multiverse, pointed out to me in a letter, I wrote a book about God and Stephen Hawking because I was so disturbed by what I found in the grand design. Uh, He wrote to me and he said, Look, he said, Even if the multiverse theory is true, and it hasn't been proved, because we've no access to these universes anyway. It's no argument against God, because God can create as many universes as he likes. And in fact, a book that I tend to take very seriously, it's called The Bible, you may have heard of it, <laughs> does indicate that this world may not be the only one. See, God or multiverse just doesn't work. It's a false dichotomy. It's a false opposition. Now, John Polkinghorne, who taught me quantum mechanics at Cambridge, and is a Christian, he says, well, what you're choosing between is an infinite ensemble of universes which are not accessible to us, and we cannot determine whether they exist or not, and a single creator. It seems to me, ladies and gentlemen, that there's absolutely no contest Um, this says brilliant talk well that's very kind (laughs) how would you explain creation to an 11 year old who is adamant that God doesn't exist because we evolved from apes well I'd probably give the same lecture again because I sometimes find that 11 year olds understand it better than professors (laughs) I mean, the point I made earlier is you cannot deduce atheism from evolution, even if evolution is true. But then I would say more, as you'll discover if you read my books. I'm a mathematician, not a biologist. And mathematicians have a track record of fairly extreme skepticism as to whether the mechanisms that are purported For evolution like natural selection mutation genetic drift and so on can bear the weight that are put on them i take a great interest in biology i go to seminars in oxford in biology i read a lot of stuff and what has interested me is that a few not many but a few leading biologists like shapiro james shapiro who's head of one of the biggest biology labs in the world in chicago He's written a book called Evolution, A 21st Century Viewpoint. And he is very interesting in saying something like this. That in the 20th century, we biologists were so afraid of the creationists and people introducing the supernatural that we allowed a lot of work to pass muster that shouldn't have passed muster. And I read statements like there is no evidence of a gradual accumulation of small changes to produce all the diversity we see. Now these are serious biologists talking. I, I'm biologically a layman and my impression increasingly is the judgment is out. We may live to see very big changes. And in fact, the Royal Society, less than two years ago, held a big meeting raising deep questions about the whole neo-Darwinian synthesis. I'm a skeptic here, but my faith in God doesn't depend on it either way. But you see, my huge difficulty is I do not see in any of the evidence that's presented to me over the last 50 years any evidence at all that you can produce language like structures from non language by unguided natural processes? But of course, don't take my word for it. This is something we need to. Um, here's this is the last question, apparently. What is the scientific evidence for God rather than the philosophical evidence? Well, I've tried to say some of it, so perhaps I haven't been very clear. But as I sit here at this moment, of eight, I'm asked that question what's the scientific evidence? The main scientific evidence for God is that science can be done. The assumption that every scientist makes. Their basic faith is that the universe is rationally intelligible. And it was Einstein that said, I cannot imagine a scientist without that faith. It's not faith in God. It's faith in the rational intelligibility of the universe. But the next question is, why is the universe rationally intelligible? because there's a rational mind behind it, the mind of God. So that's the main evidence that we can do science. In other words, that we can think. Our thinking is an evidence that there is a transcendent dimension. Now, this is a hugely interesting topic, and I'm not going to give in to the temptation to talk about it. (laughs) But, ladies and gentlemen, if thinking can be reduced, naturalistically simply to physics and chemistry we wouldn't know anything and lewis has pointed out that the first evidence that the supernatural exists is the fact that we are rational human beings you don't have to go to the resurrection to see evidence for the supernatural it starts with you and me when we ask the question how does thinking work and where does it actually come from? And again and again, it it comes into my mind all the time. The Bible says relatively little about the how of creation, but what it does say is profound. And God said, the universe was formed by a series of speech acts. That is the exact opposite of random unguided processes. It's summed up in the first statement in the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the word. This is a word-based universe. Science is a word-based activity. Mathematics is a word-based set of theories. (coughs) Word is a generalized sense of symbols and equations and so on. We use words to talk to one another. And that whole thing is evidence of the fact that the most sensible explanation of our universe is that in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning there was nothing and nothing became everything. I do not find a very impressive way and I would not stake my life on it. Because, you see, science only gets you so far. It makes the existence of God plausible, but then you have to engage with the claim that the word became human. What's the evidence for that? It's not scientific in the sense of the natural sciences, but it's rational in the sense of the historical and experiential sciences. You can get at it through history, and I suspect that some of the talks this week are unpacking that. How can you approach something like the claim I made earlier, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead? You can approach it historically, but you can also approach it uh, experientially. This is my last point, if that's all right. I'm often asked, you're a scientist, you can't possibly be a Christian. Why not? Because you can't test Christianity. And the whole secret of scientific work and experiments as you said of an experiment, you test your hypothesis. There's nothing like that in Christianity. Who told you that? Of course there is. I wouldn't sit here for a nanosecond if I didn't believe that Christianity could be tested. And you say, how tested? Well, let me give you an example. Now, some of these words may seem to some of you mumbo-jumbo, but you can find out what they mean. Jesus claimed that if we were prepared to trust him and turn away from the mess we've made of our own lives and other people's lives, it's called repentance, we would know peace. I speak to many, many people, and I find that the vast majority are not of peace. We would know forgiveness from guilt. Does that mean anything to you? We would receive a new relationship with God that gives us a living power through his spirit. Maybe mumbo jumbo, but listen ladies and gentlemen, you've got to listen to what Christianity claims before you can judge it. We would be given a new power to live and fight against the problems that we meet every day and you see what I'm claiming is that when we make a personal response to Christ it is utterly transformative and that shows itself you know often I meet people and they're at the end there was a student I'll tell you a little story there was a student at Harvard and when I was lecturing to several thousand people and when I'd finished, he stood up and shouted from the balcony. And he said, just look at me. And of course, we looked. <laughs> Why should we look at you, I said. He was obviously addressing me. Well, he said, six months ago, I heard you speak at Penn State University. And I was right at the end. My life was in a total mess. I had nowhere to go. And he said, you said something and I followed it up, and a couple of months later, I think he said, I found Christ, I became a Christian, something like this, and he said, just look at me, and he was radiant, and it made the point brilliantly. You see, if I hadn't observed that hundreds of times, I wouldn't be sitting here. I'm here because I believe this message is not just way out there in terms of philosophy. The philosophy and the argument and the logic are all extremely important but Christianity rests, and this is its strength on two pillars the objective and the subjective and in the end the proof of the pudding is in the eating and when I see marriages that are on the rocks as I often have and then people become Christians trust Christ, put it whatever way you like and the marriage comes together alcohol is turned into food on the table, drug dependence is turned into peace and joy with the family and the children you begin to add two and two and you get four there's something in this business that Christ is not simply an abstract figure from the past but if the resurrection means anything it means he's alive today and he's alive right now and through me He is asking you to rethink where you're at in your journey. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen.